This is FedSpeak. I'm Pedro da Costa. The Fed has just telegraphed it will likely begin shrinking its $8.9 trillion balance sheet as early as its next meeting in May. Here to discuss this with me is Joseph Wang, also known as FedGuy or at FedGuy if you follow his blog and Twitter accounts. Joseph is a former trader on the New York Fed's open markets desk, and so he's intimately familiar with the plumbing behind the Fed's asset purchases. Thanks so much for joining me, Joseph. Thanks so much, Pedro. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with the FOMC minutes that we just got out yesterday and the, uh, you know, not the announcement, but at least the very strong hint of what's coming in terms of quantitative tightening. What did you make of the overall amounts and the Fed's strategy for reaching the caps? Well, well, first off, I think what we have to remember is that the Fed never wants to surprise markets. So what they sketched out in the minutes was very much what they've been hinting at for the past few weeks. So from the, from the past few weeks, we've had a Chair Powell go before the congressional hearing and kind of hint that QT would take about three years. And so if you, if you take that three-year number and look how much the balance sheet has expanded and kind of guesstimate that their target balance sheet would be a little bit above where they were pre-COVID, then you come out with a number of about $1 trillion a year in QT. And that's basically what they offered yesterday. Um, and true to their word, it was a very aggressive QT. So right now, it looks like they're doing a shooting for a pace of about $95 billion a month. Now, if you recall, the last time the Fed did QT, the maximum rate was $50 billion uh, a month. So we're going to shoot for a QT that's at twice, as, twice the rate. So that is also in line with what they've been hinting at for the um, past few weeks. So I think what's really interesting about the QT, though, is that there are two new things that are different this time around than the last time around. Uh, the first is involvement of treasuries in the QT. And the second is that, um, well, they, they might do some MBS sales. So for the first part, so what's different this time around is that the Fed has, let's say, um, $330 billion in bills on their balance sheet. So under the uh, the proposed plan in the minutes, it looks like they're going to let those roll off when there's a gap between coupon maturities and uh, the redemption cap. Um, so for example, if the redemption cap is $60 billion a month for treasuries and only $50 billion in coupons matured, then they'll let $10 billion in bills roll off for a total of $60 billion. So that will basically make sure that they'll always be hitting their $60 billion cap um, for the next three years. Now, what's interesting about the MBS, though, is that the MBS cap is actually not going to be binding. So, Because we won't actually, are, we won't hit them, right? We won't. Yeah, yeah. So for, for those of you who aren't familiar with the U.S. mortgage market, so MBS is not like treasuries in that you can prepay them. So the cash flows, the principal payments, they're not, they're not contractual. So if, for example, rates drop by a lot, a lot of people could refi, and so you'd have a huge pay down. But it looks like just based upon the interest rates right now, um, interests have gone higher, so there's probably not going to be any refinancing. The New York Fed estimates that principal, prepay, principal pay downs um, for the next coming years are going to average about $25 billion a month. So that's you know significantly below the $35 billion cap. Now, that, in my view, what that shows is that it gives the Fed some kind of room to engage in sales, 
which they've also been hinting heavily at, both in the minutes and in prior commentary. So if we're only going to do $25 billion in, uh, let's say, principal payments, and the cap is 35, then sometime down the line, if the Fed wanted to accelerate QT, they have that option of selling, let's say, $10 billion a month in MBS. Let me ask you, given all that hawkishness, which came not only on the balance sheet news, but also in the news that policymakers are very actively considering one or more 50 basis point hikes, do you think markets are complacent about the prospect of kind of this much tightening at once? Uh, and where do you see fragilities that might emerge as kind of the rubber hits the road and the announcements turn into action? So that's a, that's a really good question, Pedro. And in my view, there's actually tremendous, tremendous fragility in the treasury market. And I'll talk about that in a couple of ways. Um, I'll talk about that first, but simply the supply dynam- dynamics that I see, and also something that's idiosyncratic with QT um, that we saw last time around um, when I was on the desk and might manifest itself this time around. So when you're looking at QT at a very high level and looking at the treasury portion, what happens is that the U.S. Treasury basically issues new treasuries to private investors and then takes that money and repays the Fed. So that's how the Fed gets out. That's how the Fed shrinks their balance sheet. But the bigger point, though, is that someone else in the private sector who's not the Fed is going to have to hold more treasuries. So that increases the amount of duration that the private sector has to hold. So that's one angle. And just looking at the QT flows themselves, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at $600 billion more in treasury duration that the private sector has to, has to digest. Now, that's one angle. Now, in addition to that, though, if you look at the treasury funding statement, the U.S. Treasury is expected to have net new issuance to fund deficit spending of about, well, let's say, $1.5 to $2 trillion. And for next year and the year after, it's going to be above a trillion dollars, too. So for the next three years, as we do QT and as we have massive deficit spending, the private sector is going to have to digest about $2 trillion in Treasury issuance. That's an around. It's historically high. And at the same time, we're, we're looking at a at a world where, um, you know, there's inflation is high and rising. And as you mentioned, we have rate hikes that may be very aggressive, let's say 50 basis points, many multiple times. And you can see that in rate fall as well. So when you have a lot of supply and you have a market that's having trouble pricing all this, there is a very, I think, reasonably good chance of some kind of accident happening, maybe rates shooting higher. And that brings me to my, to my second point. So, As we all recall, the last time we did QE, something in the market broke, and that was the repo market. So we did QT, and everything turned out fine. And just like uh, Chair Yellen mentioned, it was like watching paint dry until one day in um, September 2019, the repo market basically exploded. Now, I was on the the desk back Yeah, yeah. And that was was quite quite an eventful day. So... For most of you who don't know, the repo market is kind of a sleepy market, a very important market, but a sleepy market. Repo rates around then was basically about 2% every day. And in that one spike day in, um, in September, it got up to as high as 10%. Wow. And what that had to do really was, was partially due to QT. Now, the way that this works, and there's a lot of moving parts to, to how QT works, but one of the things that happens is that you basically shrink the cash balances held by the commercial banks. And 
these cash balances are called reserves. And that's the whole point of QT. It's shrinking the level of reserves in the system. That has an impact on um, markets that were being de- that were dependent upon bank investing. So back in the prior QT, the commercial banks were taking all their huge reserves and they were investing it in repo. And so as QT gradually shrank their cash balances, what happened was there's less money available to invest in repo until one day there's an air pocket and then repo rates spiked uncontrollably. Now, this time around, if you look at the publicly available data, post-2020, banks haven't been investing in repo. It doesn't make sense because the rates have been so low. What they have been doing, though, is buying enormous amounts of treasuries and agency MBS, like over at $1.5 trillion. And so as we do QT, then what will happen is that banks will have less cash balances to invest in these securities. And again, you're having the same dynamic as you had last time around. You're taking away uh, money that was on the margins being used to invest in treasuries. And at the same time, remember, we're having this historic issuance that the private sector has to digest. So increasing supply, decreasing demand, there is a potential for some air pockets there. So I think of that as the uh, the point of fragility that that we'd have to be thinking about going forward. Really interesting. I can only imagine what it was like to be on the desk that day. It must have been a lot of a lot of heads on fire. Um, I wonder if we could segue to Bill Dudley's concern on this matter. He's he's put out a column this week, the former New York Fed chief, warning essentially that the Fed can sort of talk all at once about hiking rates, but if it doesn't actually tighten financial conditions significantly, it's basically not doing the job. And his point was that you have to you have to crash something in order to fix inflation, whether it's the stock market or raise the unemployment rate. Is that where we are? Is that is the Fed so far behind the curve that it essentially has to cause some significant economic pain in order for us to get inflation back toward target? So uh, Bill Delia's remarks were, I think, caught a lot of attention. And I, I actually agree with him, and I, and I appreciate him for, for being so frank. So the way that I see this is that post-GSC, the Fed has basically used the wealth effect as a major policy tool. And this isn't a secret. Um, Bernanke has, has talked about it. So I think in the post-GFC world, we had low growth and low inflation. And the Fed began to think that maybe if it made households wealthier, let's say they had higher stock portfolios, more home equity, maybe they would then take that money and they would buy stuff. And that would make, uh, let's say, increased growth and inflation. And that seems to have been part of the policy tool. Now, now, if that is in their toolbox, and it does seem like they've been looking at it that way for some time, then naturally, when you're in a world where you have, um, let's say, inflation that's too high and growth that is, uh, let's say, above what it would should, uh, the economy is basically overheating, then you would use that policy and you, you take it in reverse. So another way to think about this is to just reduce the net worth of households so that they have less money to spend and as a way to cool down the economy. So I think that that does make sense. But also, strictly speaking, when the Fed is hiking rates, it it is kind of imposing losses on on the bond market, right? That's explicitly what they're doing. So um, it seems like I think one of the ways you can think about what's happening in the economy is that everyone has too much money. They're spending on everything and it's causing inflation. Uh, prices go higher. 
but still it doesn't destroy demand because a lot of people made a lot of money through housing and through the stock market. So one way to, to um, damp, that, damp that down a bit is to cause a reverse wealth effect. And, and I guess that's why they call it pulling away the punch bowl, right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Joseph. That was a, a real tour de force. I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure, Pedro. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Fed Speak, and I'm Pedro da Costa.